Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, it's April 1964, and in Berlin, Adolf Hitler is preparing to celebrate his 75th birthday. So writes the novelist Robert Harris in his hugely popular counterfactual novel Fatherland, which imagines the frightening thought that the Nazis have won the Second World War. Welcome to The Rest is History, with me, Dominic Sambrook, and Tom Holland. And today we're talking one of the, about one of the great subjects of all historical conversations, counterfactuals great what-ifs of history. The Nazis winning World War II, the Roman Empire never falling, England never experiencing the Reformation, the possibilities are endless. But is this really a valid form of historical inquiry or is it just sort of pub game playing? Tom Holland, what do you think? I think it's both. <laughs> if that's not a weasel reply. I mean, that is a weasel reply. It is a slightly weasel, but I, th- I mean, I think the, um, you know, uh, what would have happened if the Spanish had invaded in 1588 or Britain had lost the Battle of Britain or whatever. I, I think it very rapidly spirals into pub, pub games. Um, but I do think that seen from another perspective, the, almost the whole process of writing history is a matter of, of what ifs, because yeah. you have to write history as though, you know, we know what's going to happen, but the people who are living through the events that you're writing about don't. And so you need to inhabit a mindset in which, all kinds of possibilities are open, wouldn't you say? I, well, I think I in narrative history, an, an element of uncertainty is often key to the success of your narrative. But I think cultural and social as well, don't you think? I mean, culturally, socially, economically, things could go in different ways. But this is the big question, isn't it? Could they have done? I mean, I think if you're writing analysis, you're always going to ask, you know, why didn't they choose option B or C? What would have happened? You know, how could they have averted this crisis? Especially if you're assessing the performance of, let's say, a, a prime minister or a king or a president or something. You know, so for example, when I write about Margaret Thatcher and her economic policies, hanging all the time in the air is the question: Well, okay, why did she choose that rather than that? What would have happened? What were the? What did they think would happen? Um, and so I think well, you're you, constantly... you wrote a series, didn't you? You wrote a series of essays for the New Statesman on yeah. kind of what ifs in recent British politics. Uh, yes, there were sort of British what ifs. There was four. There were forty of them, I think, in all. And you know, they were quite short. They're about four hundred, four hundred and fifty words. Uh, what if England had? Um, what if the Anglo-Saxons had won the Battle of Hastings? You know, what if the Spanish Armada had succeeded? What if the Falklands War um, had gone the other way? But they were quite tongue in cheek. And I, and actually, I don't think they were commissioned to be tongue in cheek. But actually. Pretty you early found it on, impossible not to. I, I found it impossible. I find it pointless and impossible yeah. not to. So to ask the question, what if the Anglo Saxons had won the the Battle of Hastings? In in four hundred words, it's impossible to answer that actually <laughs> yes. in, a, in a serious way. So did you write it in English without any French, any French or Latinate words at all? Or yeah, basically, be- what I ended up doing, um, 
the historian, the great historian, the former Regis professor at Cambridge, Richard Evans, he analysed my own pieces in his book, Altered Past, which is about counterfactuals. And he spotted something that hadn't really occurred to me, which is that basically I ended up writing parallel histories rather than what-ifs. So a history in which everything happened as it did happen, but basically the names were changed. So the Cromwells remained the dynasty ruling Britain, but there was kind of George Cromwell in the early 19th century who was very dissolute and drank a lot. Yeah. And then there was H.H. Yeah. H. Cromwell, who was Asquith in the 1910s, and then Margaret Cromwell. And, you know, because to, to, to make, start making stuff up just struck me as, as bonkers, actually, as just sort of pure fantasy fiction. And I think that's the issue with Can. I mean, that Evans in his book, Altered Pasts, divides counterfactuals into, he says, you know, there are some of them are wish fulfillment. Some of them are kind of dystopian fantasies. Or some of them are just completely sort of mad fictional, you know, self-indulgence. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, okay. So, so I, th- I, so I think on the classic, you know, the, 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 the classic what ifs, um, I think that a lot of them revolve around battles or wars because those are kind of testing moments where one side or other is going to win. And yes. if the other side wins, then you could posit, well, what would happen? And I suppose also in, in, um, you know, your field, elections is another one. Um, what happens if something happens to cause, I don't know, Mrs. Thatcher to lose in 1979 or whatever? Then, but battles, uh, battles are more contingent than elections, though. Battles aren't they? are more I think. contingent. And so, so f- I think it's interesting that, um, the very first what if appears in the very first work of history which is Herodotus, and he's writing about the Persian Wars. Okay. The of the Persian king to, 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 he invades and attempt to conquer Greece. And that is one of the kind of enduring what-ifs. So, um, you know, what happens if, if, if the Athenians lose the Battle of Marathon? What happens if the Greeks lose the Battle of Salamis? And Herodotus is making a point about the fact that the reason the Greeks um, managed to defeat the Persians is principally down to the Athenians rather than to the Spartans or to um, any other uh, Greek city. And he says, I know that this is going to be very unpopular opinion because he's writing it against the backdrop of um, Athenian imperialism, where Athens is, is very unpopular. But he says, but I'm going to make this case anyway. And, I, I, and to demonstrate my point, imagine if the Athenians had either gone over to the Persians or had packed up all their belongings and sailed away to Sicily to plant a new city, as some were talking about, what would have happened then? And he says, well, what would then have happened is that that, that um, the Persian fleet would have had free access to the Peloponnese, so the kind of the chunk of fork that yeah. uh, lies beneath the, the Isthmus of Corinth. Um, they would have been able to land troops wherever they wanted on the Peloponnese. All the Peloponnesians would have surrendered. The Spartans would either have surrendered or they would have been wiped out doing incredible feats that would ring down the ages, but they would have, have lost. And that is why I think that uh, the Athenians, you know, basically win the war without the Athenians they can't win the war and mm. I, I think it's really really interesting you know Herodotus is kind of groping you know history is something that 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 he's essentially inventing and I think it's really telling that you do get that right in the very first but work. let's pursue that for a second because I think that actually raises some interesting questions about what ifs let us imagine that Herodotus Herodotus's scenario you know happened um that Greece that the Greeks had lost, as it were, the Persian Wars, and that the Persians had incorporated mainland Greece or the Greek islands generally into their empire. So what? Would history... You know, Greece and Persia were never... 
you know, you can sort of take this on. Greece and Persia were always enmeshed one way or another. There was always lots of cultural sort of cross currents between them. The, 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 what we call the Greek world or the Near Eastern world would probably have evolved not massively differently. Alexander and his conquests basically incorporated the Greek and Persian worlds. Then they broke up with the wars of the successors anyway. So you've got the kind of melting pot. So in the long run, what seems like a seismic what if arguably looks to a determinist like me looks rather less important, you know? So, so I would, I would answer that by saying that I think the, um, the Battle of Marathon. It's more decisive than, say, the Battle of Salamis, because you could imagine the the Persians occupying Greece, the Athenians and the Spartans coming to some form of accommodation, rebellion rising up, the Persians being kicked out, Greek history resuming its course. You could kind of imagine that happening. I think that with Marathon, the aim was to to wipe the city out, to to kill the men, to take the women and children into slavery and transport them to, um, to, to the, the depths of the Near East, as had happened to Greek cities, um, Miletus, particularly on the other side of the Aegean. So if that had happened, then, um, certainly you'd have had no democracy. I mean, you could argue perhaps again, some democratic form of government would have emerged elsewhere in the Greek world, perhaps. But also I think you wouldn't have had Socrates and you wouldn't have had Plato. You wouldn't have had Aristotle. And I think if you didn't have Plato, I think Plato's influence on what becomes Christianity and Islam is so seismic that I think that the, the course of world history would have been very different. Because I think okay. that um, the existence of someone like Plato, his his philosophy is a kind of contingent fact. Again, you could argue, well, uh, it, it's something that emerges from the seedbed of Greek culture. Perhaps, you know, if there wasn't someone called Plato, a Plato with another name would have emerged. I don't think exactly, so. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think so. That's the argument that says if Lennon and McCartney didn't meet, some other British band would have right. been the Beatles. So I do, I do think that um, the emergence of Christianity and Islam are vastly transformative processes that have shaped the world incalculably. And I do not think that the, the, the world that we live in now would be recognisable if they had not, if, if that process had not happened. And, um, and you think that was contingent on one or two individuals? I think it's, no, I think it's contingent on all kinds of things, but, but you could, you know, if, if Plato had never been born, I think that the, the moral, cultural, philosophical, ultimately religious world of Europe right. and the Near East would have been incalculably different. Um, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if Jesus had been let off by Pontius Pilate, you <laughs> could imagine you know, things, things being very different. Well, what, see, what's interesting about this is that, is that what ifs almost always, when you start to discuss what ifs and counterfactuals, I think you always come back to the question about, actually about individuals in history, because what ifs are almost always premised on something changing for a particular individual or a particular regime, you know, a battle, somebody lives who died or somebody dies who had lived, basically. Kennedy is not assassinated. Catherine of Aragon's first child lives. You know, these are the sort of the things you play with. And actually, I think when you start to dig into them, often you find out that much less changes than you think. So, I mean, the classic example that I always bring out when I'm sort of talk to annoy my audiences is I say, you know, if Margaret Thatcher had fallen under a bus in 1978, would Britain be at all different today? You know, the, the, the forces that she incarnated, the, the, the structural changes that she came to embody would probably have happened one way or another anyway. And I think that's actually true of lots of individuals in history. 
that they become, as it were, when I mean, we're going back to our greatness podcast, they become, they're, they're seen as great actors because they incarnate something bigger than themselves. And, and that's often a force that they become yeah. the, the incarnation of, but it's not it's, because they've generated it. I mean, it's a kind of Broidelian perspective, isn't it? That there's yeah. the, the kind of the vast depths of the ocean that, that nothing changes, the kind of the geography, everything, you know, there's nothing you can alter. And then there's the kind of the, you know, nearer the, the, the deep yeah. tides of economics and social history. And then on the top, there's the kind of the froth. Exactly. I think about the front page of the newspaper and then what's below. And the front page would, would, what could easily be different, but what's below the nuts and bolts of a society, I, I don't think. I mean, of course, there are some instances that you say, you know, if Stalin hadn't been running the Soviet Union, if Hitler had not come to power in Germany. But, you know, had take the Hitler example. Had Hitler not come to power in Germany, is it plausible that there would not have been a Second World War? There probably would have been another World War, yeah. wouldn't there? There'd have been an authoritarian nationalist regime in Germany that would have wanted revenge. There would have been, there were all these problems left over from the you know end of the First World War. And, and actually, the worst happened to Germany. You know, it fell under the regime of the Nazis. Millions of people died. And here we are all these years later, and Germany is Europe's economic and, and cultural powerhouse once again. So mainland Europe's economic and cultural powerhouse anyway. So in that, in that sense, the, the Nazi interlude was a punctuation point in Germany's long story. And the, the sort of what if, you know, maybe in the, in the long, weird as it might sound, maybe it doesn't really matter. Who was in charge when the Second World War happened? Yeah, I, 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 yes, I, 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 I accept that, and I think that obviously there are throughout the, you know, the the ages through which history has been written. For most of it, people have been governed by a sense that time is moving forwards to a kind of definite end. So the the Christian providential narrative is is the kind of primal one that I think inspires most of the rest. But you get it with Marxism as well. Mm. Um, and I think you've, you definitely get it with, um, kind of, well, I mean, the, in the very word progressive, if, 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 if things are yeah. progressive, there's a sense that you're moving forwards inevitably, you know, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, and I think that that is something that is very, very strong in our assumptions. That, that 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 is inevitable. I mean, I mean, going back to the end of history, I and mean, we talked about in the nineties podcast, yeah. that, the, that history does have a definite end. I do think that the value of counterfactuals is in kind of slightly shaking that up, and I do think that there is a sense in which a lot of history is a kind of sublimated theology. It's an attempt to to find patterns that you can trace through, and there is kind of buried in it a sense that there is a kind of inevitable endpoint. And I think that that's not entirely true. And so in a sense, if you don't have that patterning, if you don't have the sense that you can trace these patterns, then then essentially you can't do history because it's it's all contingent. It's all just kind of one thing after another and everything is chaos. Yeah, you need to impose a pattern to impose meaning. I mean, otherwise you just have a succession of random events. I agree with that. I think there's, um, people distinguish between different kinds of counterfactuals. I think there's a book by Jeffrey Parker and Philip Tetlock. I think it's, um, the authors where they talk about, so there's, there's a very limited, time limited counterfactual where you say, for example, it's your kind of battle or it's your emperor who's got a single decision to make. Why does he choose A rather than B? What happens if he did choose B? And then there's the sort of spiraling out mad fantasy 
Now that's, I think, is pure fiction. The, you know, yeah. um, but I think you can reasonably There's, zero in on a given decision and say, well, knowing all the variables or knowing as many of the variables as we can, you know, what can we say about if Churchill had chosen this rather than that? If, if, if Hitler had done X rather than Y, don't you think? There's, there's a, a brilliant early one, isn't there, by a, a French guy shortly after Waterloo who constructs a, a brilliant thing yes. in which, um, Napoleon wins, um, he defeats the Russians. He invades England, conquers England, ends up as kind of world emperor. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's, uh, on a ship sailing back from the conquest of Africa or South America, or whatever, and passes St. Helena <laughs> and the shadow briefly passes over. His. But that, but that of course is total fantasy. It's wish fulfillment. It's, it is wish fulfillment. And a lot of them, so they were very, very popular in the eighties and nineties among British, young British conservative historians. So the Neil Ferguson's, the Andrew Roberts, John Charmley. Um, and a lot of them are about Europe and Britain's relationship with Europe. And they imagined Britain staying out of world wars and retaining its empire. So you could see them actually. I mean, Richard Evans sort of clearly sees them as a, as a response to, you know, as a sort of Tory response to the loss of empire and to the growth of the EU that people indulge in these counterfactuals, partly as a sort of political message. You know, it doesn't have to be like this. We could be an imperial power. We don't have to be just a sort of greater Belgium. But Richard Evans is also, I mean, it's kind of a broader point, isn't it? That, um, if you, uh, you're, you're likelier to believe in the ability of great men to shape history if you're on the yeah. right than if you're on the left and you believe that, you know, there are kind of vast impersonal forces. Yeah. And that's where, right. And that's where, as a, as a, as you know, as a, as a leading left wing historian, um, where I actually completely agree with him. I think that when you, you know, you ask those sort of questions, you're inevitably brought back actually to the big processes that, that meant that history worked out as it did. So he gives the example in this book of somebody who wrote a, an, um, an essay about, I think Jonathan Clark wrote an essay about if the glorious revolution had never happened, <laughs> would Britain have kept America? And he said, well, and Evans says, I think rightly, well, the question is completely mad because the glorious revolution happened for a reason. It didn't happen because of a fluke. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a bit like, it's like saying, you know, we often ask the, these questions of ourselves. If I had been born in Elizabethan England, would I have been a Catholic or a Protestant? Well, it's an unanswerable question because you'd be somebody else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but also, but also the kind of assumption that if Elizabeth I dies and Philip II conquers England or James II defeats the Glorious Revolution, then England will become Catholic. And so there's not a huge issue yeah. turning an already yeah. very Protestant country Catholic. But that is why, to, just to go back to um, Jesus and Muhammad, I yeah. do think that they are epical figures because I do... I, I think that the, the the story of the of the the crucifixion and the resurrection is fundamental to the way that the kind of the moral universe that Christians come to inhabit, and I think it's so distinctive and transforms so much. And I think likewise with the the figure of Muhammad, something mysterious around that. Um, it's, well, his, his, it's, so so you could absolutely say that. Um, the, the Arabs were going to, con I think, you know, the Arabs conquer. We're going to conquer anyway because they're technology. Going to conquer anyway, they, yeah. We're going to conquer anyway, but but there's there's some kind of peculiar admixture in there that that I think is not inevitable. There's nothing there's not, not there's nothing inevitable about the emergence of what becomes Islam, um, and so I do think that that the, the great religions, Christianity and Islam, I, yeah. I, I really do think that that a world without them would be fundamentally different. Who could have possibly expected? that Tom would bring the first half of the podcast to a close by talking about Christianity and Islam. We'll take a break. 
Uh, and, and if you're still what with is? us, yes, if you're still <laughs> with us, we'll go into your questions when we return. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. On Thursday, we'll be talking to the journalist and writer Jonathan Wilson on the way that football has become embedded in our social and cultural history. And perhaps if we combine this podcast with Thursday's podcast, we can make a case for England winning multiple World Cups. What if that Frank Lampard goal had been given? What if Maradona's handball had been disallowed? I could be talking about this for hours. Well, perhaps that's too difficult to believe. Tom Holland, let's have some questions. Yes. So we have an uh, open question from Shane Regan. Uh, it's a great question. Why does counterfactual history tend to skew to the negative? What does it say about us that pessimistic alternative history fiction uh, is so popular? Mm, that's a great question. It's generally dystopian. I mean, we have the, the, the Napoleon one, which is obviously a kind of fantasy. But by yeah. and large, um, I guess the answer to that is that um, we like to be scared, I suppose. Yes, and it's a kind of branch of science fiction in a way, isn't it? Some, some, it's sort of alternative, what do they call it? Alternative history. Um, and I think, but also I, I think, well, it's interesting because the, the, it's, it's almost negative in another way because what if history normally works on something not happening that did happen? So Hitler doesn't lose the Second World War. Kennedy isn't assassinated. You know, it's not 
it doesn't imagine somebody existing who, who, who didn't otherwise exist. It doesn't add something to the story. It takes something away, doesn't it? And then what it does is it creates this very gloomy dystopian scenario. Um, I think because we love to be, you know, we, because it would be very difficult to do it another way, wouldn't it? You couldn't write a utopian what if. It, it, it actually serves to cheer you up because it reminds you of, the fact that, you know, we're not living under a Nazi tyranny. So that's cheerful. Whereas if you write yeah. an old book in which everything's brilliant and then you come back well, to, well, exactly. Well, not- you know, so, uh, you know, a, 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 a history in which COVID doesn't break out. I mean, it would kind of be depressing to think of, <laughs> you know, everything we've missed. Yes, that's right. That's a very good point. And actually the Nazi what if histories, they're the fruits of victory, aren't they? They're the indulgences yes. that you allow yourself if you've which escaped is- that, if you've escaped that reality. Which is why I guess that most of them are written by British or American yeah. authors. I mean, I would right, guess. Right, because a, a, a German writer writing, I mean, the Germans know yeah, or the what, French. Like, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's quite yeah. depressing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, Mark Hobbs, what are your favourite alternative history novels and films, and which of any put forward the most plausible scenario? Um, well, these are, that's a good question. So we've talked about this, I think, in a historical fiction episode, maybe. Yeah, we did. Um, uh, so I like King's Lamus's book, The Alteration, um, about a sort of Catholic England. Um, I also think about it on TV and so on. I mean, I liked, I liked the world of the man in the high castle. I, I, I was entertained to see that realized, um, on screen. I think, um, Len Dayton's SSGB is a, is a, Pretty good one. Not as well known as Fatherland. Um, uh, that was televised, wasn't it? It was. I didn't. I only saw the first episode of that, but I think it was better on the page, actually. And what about you? You must have. The, did you ever read those books about what if the Roman Empire still existed? Yes, I, I'm quite. I'm quite quite a glutton for them. But I, right. the, the problem, I, the problem that I have with them is that um, the Roman Empire was never going to hold together. Yeah, it's um, just a ludicrous. It, it was never going to yeah. hold together, and. And the, and the other problem I have with them is that almost invariably, um, the Roman Empire kind of continues along the, the technological progress, the technological road that, um, modern Western Europe does. So it's a Roman Empire with cars and planes <laughs> and things. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's any, anything inevitable about that at all, because actually, one of the kind of one of the interesting ways in there's a strand of technological what ifs. So I remember Arnold Toynbee um, looks at what would ha- what would happen if um, Alexandrian engineers had developed the steam engine. So they they do develop the principle of steam power, but they use it for kind of um, special effects in in temples. And um, Toynbee imagines Macedonian soldiers in steam trains steaming across Mesopotamia. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then there's um, uh, the difference engine. I don't know if you've read that by William Gibson and Bruce no. Sterling, which yeah. is uh, a world in which um, Babbage and Ada Lovelace invent the computer, and um, Vic- Victorian England is um, run by you know computers. It's 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 become technologically advanced. And again, this is impossible because the past just isn't there. Um, and I think that that really brings home how. It, it is essentially fantasy. I, I mean, the difference engine is very, very self-consciously science fiction. And yeah. I, I just, you know, I, technology is bred of very, very specific cultural, yeah, economic, social circumstances that can't just a, be kind of transplanted to different periods. But, but Tom, have you read that book? I've only read reviews of it. There's a book, isn't there, that argues that basically the Roman Empire needed to fall 
for yes, Western... Walter Scheidel. Walter yeah. Scheidel, uh, the Escape from Rome, and which is essentially um, it's it's fascinating because it's it's a, 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 it's um, one long engagement with the principle of what if, and the thesis his thesis essentially is that. Um, the Industrial Revolution would have been impossible without the collapse of the Roman Empire, because it's the collapse of the Roman Empire that generates a fragmented Europe, and it's the fragmentation of Europe that generates the degree of competition that enables industrialization. So that's quite a right wing argument to an extent, I suppose. Uh, to, isn't it? To, to an extent, but so so he this, this requires him to demonstrate that the Roman Empire is a freak that it emerges in a, at a particular junction of time, that it's the only moment where it could arise. And actually, he goes back to uh, another another ancient counterfactual, which was proposed by Livy, the Roman historian, where he talked about what would have happened if Alexander the Great had lived and had yeah. invaded Italy. Would the Romans have, have been conquered or not? Um, and Walter Scheidel goes through and he, he essentially says that there's something unique about Rome the, the the culture of Rome, the militarist culture of Rome, that makes it incredibly expansionist, but also that the the um, the way in which there's a lack of viable opposition at the time where it, it expanding through the Mediterranean that enables it to, to conquer. But he essentially his argument is that that never again are those circumstances there, and that it, essentially it's impossible to impose a unitary empire on Europe. And so he goes through a whole series of what ifs. Essentially, to illustrate that 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 um, you know uh, Philip II would, would never have conquered Europe, that uh, Louis XIV would never have done, that Napoleon wouldn't have done, that Hitler was bound to lose the Second World War, that even if the Mongols had had penetrated deep into Europe, they would never have subdued it. Um, and it's it's a, you know he's a brilliant historian, brilliant historian, and essentially the the what if is fundamental to the entire exercise. It's very interesting. That is fascinating. I'm definitely going to read that book. All right, well, let's move on. Um, we've got tons of what-ifs. Uh, Chet Archibald, who's, a, I think, a, a long-term fan of the show, asks the classic, you know, what if Archduke Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated? Would Europe still have gone to war before 1920? What would the world look like if there hadn't been two cataclysmic world wars in the 20th century? Do you want to answer that, Tom? I, I've got my I answer. Think that, no, I think that's you. That's you. Okay, so... Okay, so Franz Ferdinand doesn't take a wrong turning. Well, could easily happen, but... Um, Austria, Hungary, the tension between Austria and Hungary and Serbia, and Serbia it, it, it's hard to imagine it not resulting in conflict at some point or some, some, you know, that, that sort of fracture zone in the Balkans of the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires, I think was bound to produce tension that might end in war. Um, the various policymakers in Berlin, Paris and Petersburg and so on, they, most of them thought war was coming. They were gearing up for it. So this is the trigger, but, um, some kind of trigger could well have emerged. It's very hard yeah. to imagine a scenario in which there is no such trigger in the next 10 to 20 years. And he says, you know, what might the world look like if there hadn't been two cataclysmic wars in the 20th century? Well, I think this goes to your, it's, it's not dissimilar from your point about technology, Tom. The wars happened for, for good reason. They didn't happen, um, by, by fluke or by mischance. Yeah. They happened because the conditions for war were there. And, you know, you can change the characters and the events, but the conditions would still have been there and, and, yeah. and the wars would have happened, I think. So if you've got, if you've got a cellar full of, of gunpowder and you yeah. people are going around lighting matches at some <laughs> point, yeah. at some point, it's, some point it's going to go off. So I mean, this so comes back to the point about, about, about wars in the first world war episode. Wars were a common feature of European life. 
So to imagine a 20th century without war is basically to imagine a 20th century without European human beings, I think. Yes. Okay. So we've got quite a lot of questions about, um, about the Second World War and about the Roman Empire. We might come back to them if we've got time. But here's one that, it, 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 interesting one, Anthony Saunders, if Henry V had lived to a ripe old age, would England and France have stayed one kingdom? For how long? <laughs> That's a good so that is a good question, isn't it? I wrote that as one of my what, what new statesman mad what if essays. Uh, Henry and what, what, what conclusion did you come to? He marries Joan of Arc. <laughs> 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 um, oh yeah, I, I had it where. So so what I, I think I imagined in that scenario was that England and France were united. Um, French because France was so big and rich that French influence became predominant, and that ball became the national sport of England. Right. And, you know, people wearing berets and, you know. So this is a very, this is a very serious. <laughs> so what's it, seriously, Dominic, what do you think? No, I don't think it would have stayed one kingdom. I think probably some sense of, um, I, I, I think, you know, the, the fragmentation of the, of the Wars of the Roses suggests that the pressure for some kind of fragmentation was probably too great. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's hard I, to imagine so. a 16th, let's say in the 16th century, England and France being one kingdom and people not trying to break away. Don't you think? I mean, I yeah. think it, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't make any difference. I don't think. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think the more interesting counterfactual from the same period, by the way, is about Henry VIII. What if Henry VIII does have a, a son and does Catholicism stay entrenched in England because it did in France, a very literate society with a lot of Protestants, you know, with a really vibrant intellectual culture. And yet Protestantism doesn't become entrenched in France. So it but didn't have to become a civil war. Yeah. But, but that's, so. but you know, you could argue the conditions for Protestantism were always there in England, the trade with, with Flanders, with, with Germany, the, the passage of Bibles, the, the merchant class, all those conditions were there, but they existed in France as well. And so the implication of that is actually that um, what-ifs perhaps work better um, in, in dynastic periods, in monarchical systems, where um, ki- the, the future of kingdoms really are swayed by whether yeah. people marry, whether they die, whether they have children, um, rather than the kind of more democratic state where... Yes. Elections where, are not going, you know, I mean, I, does any election you know, I said, matter? I said, you know, that's the kind of, that's yeah. the, the question. I mean, it's obviously sometimes they do, but taking a very long view, you know, Britain since World War II, does it really matter who was in power at any given moment? Arguably so not. There is, on, on that, there is another one from Lucinda who asked, what if Elizabeth I married and had children? No union, no crowns, no active union. England, Scotland never united. I mean, England would, would, would then have been dragged into the snarl of, of dynastic politics on the continent far more than, than it was. Yeah. But were England and Scotland not likely to unite at some point? I mean, you know, this is one for your uh, Scottish nationalist listeners. Um, was the act of union inevitable? Uh, uh, and in, in a sense, even if the act of union hadn't happened, England and Scotland surely would have been so tightly enmeshed. Because of the Protest- shared Protestantism. Yeah, because of um, the, yeah. you know, once the Industrial I, Revolution happened and economic, you know, links yeah. and all the rest of it. So again, I think, I think that's probably kind of surface, surface froth, isn't it? And the deep tides are yeah. moving in I, the same I, direction. I would, I would argue. Um, underneath. Um, so his, Bill Jones has a question for both of us. Yeah. Uh, one for me. What if Hannibal had taken Rome? 
uh, and one mm, for Dominic. On. What if the Argentinian Air Force had had bombs that actually exploded when they hit ships? So if Hannibal had taken Rome, um, well, he wouldn't have, he, 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 he wouldn't have wiped Rome out as the Romans subsequently wiped, um, Carthage out. I think, um, the Romans would have come back. I think that, um, you know, <laughs> they, they, they were just too, I don't think I don't think Carthage could have imposed a, a long term victory on the Romans. If they had, would would Carthage have emerged as um, you know? Would we all be would they be speaking a Semitic language in France and Spain again? I don't think so because I don't think the Carthaginians were interested in that kind of imperial project. It was it was a very specifically Roman one. Um, yeah, I mean so Rome won that I, war for a reason, right? And, yes, yeah. 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 So, so again, I think that's a kind of interesting one where it seems like a huge, you know, what if, if Hannibal had taken Rome after the Battle of Cannae, but ultimately I don't think it is. I think, I think Rome would have emerged victorious anyway. Okay. I buy that. And as for the Argentinian one, I mean, this is a classic one that people say, you know, the Argentine bombs didn't all explode when they hit their targets. A lot of them, um, so could the Falklands operation have gone differently with huge consequences for Margaret Thatcher? Um, you know, there is a what if there, but of course, the reason that the British won the Falklands War was that Britain was a much richer, m- more powerful, um, country than, than Argentina with a, with a much more professional, uh, highly trained, better equipped military. So we win that war, not because of a fluke, but because, you know, once we, the British had, had traveled the vast distance, the odds were always in their favor. Yes, the Argentines could have got lucky, um, but they didn't. And, and you, and you, in a sense, you make your own luck in wars. You know, the reason that their bombs don't explode and the reason they don't enjoy more success is because they're not a better army. Um, yeah. and I think, yeah. you know, and, and again, even if you widen, if you sort of come back out, let's say that, um, the Britain, the, the operation had gone incredibly badly for the British. So the Falklands would probably have been lost, um, or, or they'd have had to have some face saving deal. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher, would she have been crippled? I mean, possibly, but equally possibly people might well have said, well, let's not, you know, this has been a dreadful moment, but let's not rot the ship. I mean, there's an interesting one because there you might say, well, there was a big psychological boost to British Would she then have lost the next election, the no, 83 election? No, I mean, this is one of the what ifs that I don't countenance actually, because the polls are already moving in that direction in the early months of 1982. And, and all polling data suggests that people were not going to vote for Michael Foote's Labour Party. Um, it's possible right. the Tories would have won a smaller majority. But okay. again, then, then, then you ask the bigger question. Well, so what? And indeed, even if Michael Foote's Labour Party had won a massive majority, again, so what? Would the course of British life have been ultimately that different? Would the big economic changes of globalization, consumerism, individualism, all those things, would they have been taken off the map? Of course they wouldn't. They'd still have been, they'd have played out perhaps slightly differently or different kind of, you know, um, different progenitors, but, but they would have played out all the same. That's my answer. Okay. Um, Frank Scott has a great one. Um, not least because um, we're going to have Camilla Townsend, author of a fantastic new history of the Aztecs coming on um, in a few weeks, I hope. Um, and Frank asks, what if Cortez fails in Mexico? Most of his expedition died from virulent local disease, new to Europeans, and the remainder are massacred or enslaved. The Aztecs upgrade technology and destroy further incursions on the beachhead. So Cortez, uh, I mean, you know, it's, he, it's a close run thing. Yeah. Um, 
you could imagine it failing. Well, surely another Spanish expedition follows a year or two later. And, uh, and I think those the Aztecs words, aren't going to upgrade technology. Well, I, was about to, I was just about to say, those words, the Aztecs upgrade technology are doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. it's a, that's slightly sort of computer strategy game. You know, they, the Aztecs <laughs> press the upgrade technology button yeah. <laughs> and suddenly they all have muskets or something. Um, yeah, I think the European conquest of the Americas is a, is a great hinge point in history that happens because the Europeans have the technology to cross the Atlantic. Um, yep. You know, they're always going to do that at some point because they're, the Portuguese are going to India, you know, they're sailing around um, Africa. They are on the move. They have the sort of, they have the equipment. So it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen in 1492 and afterwards, it'll happen in 1530 or 1560. And the Aztecs and the Incas have evolved as they have for, you know, for deep historical reasons. And they are not going to have, Steam engines yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. stuff to yeah. So yeah, the, the the Spanish have got cannon and the Aztecs have not. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think we're coming to a close. But one last, it's a classic question, and this John. this is a lightning rod for so many things that we've talked about, beginning with the very first episode on on the idea of greatness. The McCry case asks. What if Churchill had died when the New York taxi struck him in 1931? That's a great question, isn't it? I mean, I'll go first if, if you like, Tom. Um, so he could have died, you know. Um, the taxi could only have been a few feet further, you know, out and it would have hit him and killed him. Um, well, what, you know, does Britain seek peace with Hitler in 1940? So we need a podcast on the summer of 1940 to sort this out. If only I had a brother who... <laughs> um, so let's say we did. Let's say we do do a deal with Hitler. That, well, that no, first had, of all, Dominic, first of all, yeah. first of all, Churchill's dead. Yeah. Um, would, would, would someone else have emerged to play the Churchillian role That's an excellent, in the summer of 1940? An, an, so, an excellent or, point. Or, or, or to take the lead against appeasement, um, you know, is there someone else who could have played that role? Nobody quite liked Churchill, I suppose, but the, somebody would have played that role. I mean, there would have been the anointed spokesman of the anti-appeasement camp, but probably nobody with Churchill's heft, I suppose, and Churchill's military yeah. experience, which is key in um, persuading people that he was the kind of man to run a war effort. So that's suggesting that he 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 really is, you know, in 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 global terms, uh, we are talking a kind of great man shaping history then. Well, if you think that it's really important that Britain fights on in 1940, and maybe okay, there's so a heretical argument that that didn't matter. Now, I'm not going to make that argument now because I haven't really thought it through and I don't want to develop it on the spot. <laughs> but well, that's the John Charlie argument, isn't it? That's it's a, a conversation it. worth having, you know. Yes, that Britain could have done a deal in 1940. Nazism might have imploded anyway. And that actually the world in 2021 would not be so different. I'm, I'm reviewing right now a book about Stalin and, and the World War, World War II through Stalin's eyes. And this book argues, effectively argues, that the Allies, the Britain and America made fools of themselves. They should never have done a deal with Stalin. They should possibly have done a deal with Hitler instead. That, you know, millions of people die, but they died anyway, and they were always going to die. So there's nothing you can do about it. And the, the outcome, they basically spent 40 or 50 years having to undo the mistakes they made in 1941 by jumping into bed with Stalin, which is a really interesting... Okay, uh, okay, but... but, um, Anyway, go back to Churchill. Go back to your... Give us your answer about Churchill. 
I, I think that um, that May 1940 is one of the very few choke points in history. Um, I, I don't think there are many of them, but I do think that is one of them. I, d- I do think that if Britain had, had sued for terms, um, I think it would have become a satellite state. I mean, that's what Churchill said. I mean, he's, yeah. Churchill posits a what if in, 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 in the debate. He says, you know, if we have, if we negotiate terms, then we'll have to give up the fleet. Um, yes. and we'll have Mosley imposed on us as prime minister. Um, and essentially will become a kind of shadow thing. And it's that, that's the world of, um, CJ Sansom's, um, brilliant counterfactual novel, which I think is actually, you know, we were asked what's the best counterfactual novel. I think that's the best one. Um, yeah. because it's, yeah. it's a kind of, in, it's a kind of shadowy, it's a satellite Britain, um, in which, you know, the Nazis are dominate Europe and, and, and Britain doesn't really have, you know, it's Finland. It's been yeah. Finlandized. Um, so I, I do think that that is, that is, uh, a, a really decisive point where Hitler could have won the war. And if Hitler had won the war, then I think, um, I, I think, think things, things would, would be very, very different. Um, so to that extent, um, I think it's, I, I'm happy to say that that is a, that, that is a what if worth right. exploring. Well, um, on that note, one of the few, one of the few, we will come back to the summer of 1914 in a later podcast, but for, for the time being, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the most successful, most powerful podcast in the world. Oh, sorry, that's the counterfactual. You've actually been listening to The Rest is History. Small, but I like to think perfectly formed. We're back on Thursday with an examination of football and history. Don't miss it. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.